Although we study right through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter here, we found it helpful to break those very large books, 1 Corinthians being um, 16 chapters, into smaller mini-series to just keep us drawn in on the topics at hand. And we've called this series that we're going through, that we started last week and we'll finish tonight, The Powerful Foolishness of God. Because what Paul is trying to remind the church in Corinth of here is that the gospel itself and what it's done in the church of Corinth makes absolutely no sense when paired with the way that they're behaving as a church, when paired with the way that they look at themselves. They have become those who highly esteem particular things, especially themselves. And he says, you may have forgotten that, as we saw last week, the gospel of God to a world that is perishing is foolishness. And now he ups the ante a little bit. He brings the argument a bit home and he says, and don't forget the people who have received God are also foolish, right? He's talking about them. He's talking about us. He's talking about the church. And so his goal here is to remind them of who they are when God saved them, of who they were when they became Christians to draw into sheer relief God's apparent plan for saving the world, apparent plan, the church, and how different it is than we tend to think about things. So let's read together. We're going to start in verse 26 of chapter 1 and read to the end of the chapter. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." Let's pray. God, I want to pray in a way that spoils the punchline tonight, Lord. I pray that you would realign our lives around this truth, that the place of boasting in our life, the center confidence in our life, the thing that we point to uh, as being all that matters and definitive in our lives would be you. I ask that you would work that in us so deeply that we wouldn't succumb to the insecurities of the status game and having to demonstrate and prove that we're on the inside or better than others or these types of things because, because who we are is already settled in the cross of Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. During Jesus' ministry, he told a story. The story was about a man who was having a wedding for his son. And so he sent his servants out to carry personal, face-to-face invitations to the wedding. So the servant comes to a man on the list and he says, my master is having a wedding for his son and you're invited. And the guy says, you know what? I just bought a couple of new oxen. I really need to work them out. Sorry, I'm not going to make it. They go to another one on the list and he says, you know, I just got married myself so there's no way I can come. And they go down the list, guest by guest, and every guest has a lame excuse for not being there. And so they come 
the servants come back to the master and they say, Master, we went and saw everyone and everyone said no. What are we going to do? You have no guests for your wedding. And he says, go out into the city and invite anyone who will come to come. And so they do that. And they know how many seats they have at the table. They know how many plates have been set. And they come and they say, Master, there's still room for more. And he says, fine, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come. For I tell you, every seat will be sat at. And so they go and they gather these people. uh, And the wedding is had, but the guest list has changed. Now, Jesus is telling this parable in the context of being the Messiah that Israel was expecting. Being everything that God had promised. Being the very Son of God himself come to finish God's will and Israel as a whole is rejecting him. And so what he says is that the wedding will happen. The party is on. The kingdom of God is coming. It might be the guest list that is shocking. I mean, let's just recognize tonight uh, that whatever type of guests you can find in the highways and the hedges. I mean, that's, that's an interesting statement. Jesus is being intentionally provocative. And he said things like this throughout his ministry. He said over and over again, I tell you the truth, the first will be last and the last will be first. He said, in fact, there will be people from all over the world who enter into the kingdom of God before you, Abraham's own children. And he emphasized this over and over again. And Paul tonight He's telling a similar story. He's reminding the church in Corinth that God's party, if you will, this great plan of salvation, the kingdom of God itself, the guest list is a little bit shocking. It's a little bit surprising. He doesn't talk about this, by the way, in big, general, hypothetical terms about the church at large or the church as a concept or the church throughout history. He zooms right in on the church in Corinth and he says, Consider yourselves. This is what he says again in verse 26. For, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Now, we're going to see this word calling over and over and over again tonight. But it is worth noting that this time, in this first verse, Paul uses it in a slightly different way. When he says, consider your calling here... He's specifically talking about their circumstances when they became Christians. Now, that doesn't remove the reality of calling, as we'll see later on. But here, that's important. It's, much, it's uh, similar to how he uses it a few chapters later in chapter 7, when he tells Christians that they should live just as they were called. And then he goes on and he says, if you were single then continue on as single. If you were married, then don't seek to get a divorce. If you were a servant, continue being a servant. Although he adds, if you can get your freedom, get it, because freedom's a good thing. But the point of here, uh, remember your calling, is remember the circumstances. Remember when. And he says, remember that when God saved you, he says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. He already said in the passage right before this that the message of the cross, the gospel, the good news, what God has chosen as a means for salvation of the world is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. And now he says, remember, remember not many of you were wise. So the message always looks like, already looks like 
foolishness. And now he says, and the recipients, they look like fools too. Now, there's a single letter there that I think is pretty important. Notice he doesn't say, not any of you were wise. There's an M there. Not many of you were wise. That's important. In fact, if he hadn't said many, we would be left scratching our heads because we know of a handful of people in the church of Corinth who were of high standing, who were of wealth and influence. There's a handful of people in Corinth that we know of, two of whom were rulers of the synagogue. That's a a place of prestige and of influence within the Jewish community. Another one was a benefactor, a benefactor of the city of Corinth who by his own money did public works to the benefit of the city. So we know these people exist, but he says, on the whole, across the board, that's not most of you. That's not most of you. He says, if you draw a graph for the type of people who became Christians in Corinth, the first thing he says, there's not a whole lot of wise people. Okay? Now, he does add here, according to worldly standards. Now, the word there in the Greek is is literally according to the flesh. And this is a term that Paul uses extensively. It has to do with, yes, external appearance, okay? As like flesh, what you see in front of you, and spirit, the part of me that you can't see. But it also is used as a representative of the world's way of thinking apart from God, okay? Which is why it's translated in the ESV here, according to worldly standards, The idea is, from the outside, people looking on would not be impressed of the collective wisdom of the church in Corinth. And he doesn't stop there. He he doesn't just say, not many wise, but he goes on halfway through 26. He says, not many were powerful. Now, this word here for powerful is not related so much to strength as it is to influence. Okay, So don't be thinking about a church full of bodybuilders. The idea here is a church full of world changers, movers, and shakers. The idea here is directly tied to, most of the time, monetary wealth, right? That if you have money, you can make a difference, for better or for worse, right? We all have this recognition that at at its worst, sometimes the world is changed and turned because somebody has the money to do it, okay? But what he says here is, you weren't the most influential bunch, Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were the type who were making and shaping and forming. And then he continues on and he says, not many of you were of noble birth. What he says here is, not many of you come from the right families. Not many of you come from the well-respected lineage. Not many of you went to the right college. Okay, this is what he's saying. Now, what do all these things have in common when you put them together? When you look at the passage as a whole, there's two words that come into play back and forth, over and over again. Two concepts that are in play the whole time. One of them is honor, and the other is shame, right? They're opposites, okay? And so you either experience shame or you experience honor. You can't be honored and shamed at the same time. Even when he used the word boasting, that's directly correlated to these concepts of honor and shame. Now, the reason why I'm um, taking a minute to lay this out is because Paul is writing in a culture where honor and shame is a major deal. Like most Eastern cultures, honor and shame are common topics of conversation, and they're a litmus test for quality of life, right? And so 
how you behave is seen as either shameful or honorable, and that is determinant in your choices. Now, generally, we would contrast American, Western, modern culture as not being an honor and shame culture. That that's not really something that is a part of our life. And there is a sense where that's definitely true. Western, modern thinking is all about autonomy. It's about individualism. And so it's not that you don't experience honor and shame, but in this collective cultural shaming sense, right? I brought shame on my family. We're much more likely to say, I don't care what my family thinks. I'm walking my own destiny, right? That is different. This sense of um, commitment and responsibility to a community as a whole is very much a secondary idea in our thinking, but that does not mean there is no place for honor and shame in our culture. In fact, I can use one word that brings clear how often this is at play in our own lives, status. That's what Paul is talking about when he talks about the wise and the influential and the noble. He's talking about status. Status is sometimes why we buy the cars that we buy or why we choose the neighborhoods that we choose or why we send our kids to this preschool and not that preschool. Status is why we have such a word as alma mater, right? Status is determinant in our life and it happens at a very early and young level. The youngest that I could think of is elementary birthday parties. Do you remember that there were some parties you weren't invited to, right? You, you didn't meet the prerequisites of a five-year-old to attend some kid in your class's party. Status, right? And then when we get into high school, this becomes much more evident and much more visible in our lives. That's when we start to work out the things that we've observed and sometimes never been specifically taught and we just assume are the truth, which is because I am who I am and I came from where I came from, I am evidently better than you and I need to make sure that you know it, right? How much of bullying reduces down to honor and shame, to status, to you're not like me, to you don't measure up, to you don't come from where I come from, you're not powerful, you're weak, you're not influential, you're of no consequence. You're not of noble birth, but your family's an embarrassment. All of these things are status, and let's be honest. Even though we like to talk like cliques and, uh, and these, what we call adolescent politics, end, they don't. They don't. They might mature, they might become a little bit more hidden, but they play into the lives of adults throughout our life, Okay? And so now with that in mind, recognize what Paul says here about the church in Corinth. He says, not really high status people. Nobody who would be greatly esteemed or recognized in public. What he says here is, well actually, as a side note, although he talks directly about the church in Corinth, he's making a broad point about the church. It applies to our church. Did you notice tonight that even though we've rolled out the red carpet, the paparazzi is missing? Nobody cares that you're here, right? And I will add, once again, the not many. Not, not any. Not many, right? What he's saying here is not, and this is very important, especially if you're not a Christian tonight, I want you to understand this. He's not saying those who were despised in life, those who are poor, all of the underdogs in life get a free pass into heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's saying something different, and we'll get there just in a moment, but 
But I want you to recognize that this honor and shame issue, this issue of status, is not that ancient and it's not that foreign. It's a part of our lives. It's something that we face. But he says, nonetheless, look around the church and you're not going to see a lot of this. Now, like I said, I believe that this is true today, but it's harder to see in our church, in our times, because we are Western Americans and that makes us, in terms of the entire globe, relatively privileged. If you want to talk about status, let's recognize that many of you got to schools that were not an option for a person who was born on the other side of the earth, right? That many of you experience a level of wealth that is unheard of in particular cultures, even if you would identify yourself as lower middle class, right? And so it makes it hard to see this. It makes us hard to recognize this, but please recognize that when you go broad, when you look at the whole of the history, even if you include that blind spot that we tend to think that we're pretty good because self-esteem is what we do, when you look at the whole, the church is not chock full of impressive people. I want you to recognize tonight how different that is than most other organizations. What's the great selling point of why you do yoga? It's because this actress over here does it, right? How do people sell their products? They show us beautiful and successful people using them. Status matters to every other organization. And he says, but the church, the church is different. This was so much the case in the early church that one of the first great enemies of Christianity, a guy by the name of Celsus, critiques the church on just this point. Now, Celsus was a big deal. He was such a tremendous critic of the church. He was published. He was well-known. He went on book signing tours. Eventually, Origen, one of the early church fathers, wrote a response, a famous one that we still read today called Against Celsus. It's one of the first and earliest apologetics or defenses of Christianity. But it was Celsus who needed to be defended against. He was the great critic of Origen's time. Listen to what he says. This is the accusation he makes of the church. He says, their injunctions are like this. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near, for these abilities are thought to be, uh, by us to be evils. But as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who is a child, let him come boldly by the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, they show that they want and are able to only convince the foolish, the dishonorable, the stupid, only slaves, women, and children. You see, Celsus looked at the church of his day and age, and he said, it's despicable. It's full of the weak and the worthless and those that don't matter and just the dumb enough to believe it. That's how he sees it. He sees it as a Ponzi scheme. And that was true in his time. But when Paul says here, consider your calling, brothers and sisters, we can apply that to ourselves as well. Recognize, he says, that the church as a whole, not many wise, not many influential, not many noble birth. And what's most interesting is he's not just making an assessment. He's making a point. This is what he says in the next verse, 27. But God chose 
what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Do you know what Paul says in this verse? He says, this reality that we observe in the church is by design. It's intentional. It's part of the plan. He says, this is exactly as God envisioned it and as he planned. That's what he says here. That's why it emphasizes in every line here, God chose. Okay? Now, as a side note, it is observable that the gospel, that the good news of a crucified Messiah who died for our sins in our place, that is foolishness to the Greeks, the cultural representatives, and a stumbling block to the Jews, the religious representatives, it is not, or it is observable that that is a more attractive gospel to the poor and to the weak than to the rich and to the strong. In fact, don't you see it playing out in Jesus' ministry? The ones who are the most frustrated with Jesus, the ones who don't care that he does miracles, the ones who are most resistant are the respectable religious elite, the ones at the top of the food chain, the ones who everybody looks to and says, now that person knows how to walk with God. And what was the constant criticism of Jesus? Have you ever looked at who hangs out with him? It's tax collectors and sinners. Remember, Simon the Pharisee is sitting at dinner with Jesus, and he says, man, if this guy knew who that woman was, he wouldn't even let her near him. This was a normal trait. And it says that the common people heard him gladly. Sinners and tax collectors, and they go and they bring their friends. This was the reality of Jesus' ministry. And actually, I don't think that's surprising. Because if power is your status if wealth is your status and you say you know what you need most in your life you need a poor jew who died on a cross it's jarring it's frustrating what did the jews want out of their messiah a ruling and ranging king with a big sword and strong arms who would knock out rome and put israel back at the top of the food chain what did the romans look for they looked for a god in their own image who was wise like they were, who was strong like they were, who was strong-willed like they were, for him to humbly be beaten and quietly despised and to suffer the greatest invented form of torture that the Romans had ever confiscated. When they saw the Puritans were doing that, they went, that is the way to control an empire. And they took it on. We need to remember tonight that that is not honor, it's shame. That even though we can put it on as jewelry, it is a little bit disturbing that we've forgotten what it is and what it means and what it stands for. No other means of death has ever become iconic as jewelry. Ever. But listen, not only is it more common for the common to come, for the poor to come. It's part of the plan. When Jesus opens up a Bible in his home synagogue and he's handed the scroll of Isaiah and he begins to read and after he reads out of Isaiah, he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he says, I'm here, I'm arrived. What is the verse that defines Jesus' ministry? The spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news to the poor to set liberty the captives, 
to give sight to the blind. His ministry from his own mouth was focused on those who had not and those who had. But it's more than just the fact that the gospel is attractive to the poor and the weak and despised. It's that that that's part of the plan. That's why it says chose. It says that God chose what is foolish in the world. Why? To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Listen to this one. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not. Now that's a confusing phrase. Remember he's talking about people. Even the nothings and nobodies, he says. Why? God chose the nothings and nobodies to bring to nothing the things that are. You see, God's plan is an invasion of honor and shame. He takes the shamed and he honors them so that the honored would be shamed. Now, this is an idea that often makes us uncomfortable. We don't like the idea that God would feel the need to defend his own glory. Although, let's just recognize By definition, if God is God, it's probably appropriate, right? The Bible uses the phrase in the Old Testament and in the New that God is a jealous God, and there is a negative version of jealousy that we're all very familiar with, but there is a positive version of jealousy, right? Rightly reacting to what is yours being treated like it's someone else's. But, but this is more than that. What we see happening in this passage when he says that he has shamed the honorable, it's good news. It's good news for the powerful. It's good news for the noble of birth. Here's the thing. Have you ever noticed how the way that Jesus treated the sinners and tax collectors and poors doesn't seem on par or equal with the way that he treated the religious leaders? that there's a level of frustration and anger and accusation? Is it striking to you that he can say to a woman, caught in the act of adultery, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more, and then he can drive the religious leaders out of the temple with a whip and say, how can you treat my father's house this way? There's a tendency, I think, to assume, well, that's because he loves the poor and he hates the religious leaders, right? He hates these wicked men, these hypocrites, Does that really resonate with what the Bible tells us about Jesus or about God, for that matter, that God is love? Is it possible that there's more going on? Jesus tells one story that I think illuminates this very well. It's about two men who go to the temple to pray. And one of them, one of these religious leaders, one of the well-respected religious upper echelon folk, he prays like this. He says, God, thank you that I'm not like other men. I tithe once a week. I fast I do all that you require of me. And he says, but another man came to the temple and prayed and he couldn't even raise his eyes and lift to heaven and he beat his breast and he said, Father, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he says, I tell you the truth, that second one went away seen as righteous. That second one went away justified. How can that be the case? Well, first off, just recognize that the first one didn't ask for it. Isn't it interesting that when he prays and thanks God, everything he thanks God for is stuff that he did? God, thank you I'm such a great person. God, thank you that I do everything you ask of me. It's not really praying to God at all. It's praying to himself about himself. 
It's no surprise that God doesn't hear a prayer like that because he wasn't really being addressed. And the other one receives mercy because he asks for mercy. But the scary thing is not that one walks away mercified. That's really what I was going to say. It's not that one walks away receiving mercy and the other doesn't. It's that one walks away thinking that everything is fine when it's totally not. You see, the scary thing about status is that it is a completely poor judge of reality. This is why Jesus was so hard on the rich and the self-righteous and these types of things because what they're boasting in, what they're confident in, what they say makes them good and right and all of life okay is not real. Listen, this is pretty easy to prove. Those who are the honorable in this sense, those who have versus those who have not. Why do they buy that car? Why do they constantly bring up that college? Why do they defame others who are different than them? It's because internally they have undealt with shame and they're just trying everything they can to cover it up. And it doesn't work, does it? You see, the reality that the gospel presents to the rich and to the powerful and the strong is Get out of that boat, it's sinking. Jesus speaks to those in these positions in this way because the stakes are that high. Because they need to be pulled out of the fire. Because everything they're saying makes life worth living and puts them in a good position is nothing but a dream. And so, yes, he seeks to shame the powerful and shame the wise. And notice this, it says that not just does he take those that are nothing and make them something, but it says that so that those who are something will become nothing. You know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like leveling the playing field, doesn't it? He makes the valleys come up, he takes the mountains, and he brings them down. But... For the rich and the powerful and the great and the honored to accept the gospel, they have to lay aside their status. This is why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall receive the kingdom. You know what he doesn't say there? Blessed are the middle class in spirit. Right? Notice that word spirit is important. He's not talking about what you have, but what has you. He's not talking about what you own, but what defines you. And he says, you have to come as one who's poor. And that doesn't mean you have to pretend and say, I'm, I'm going to close my eyes to all my wealth. I'm poor now. Can you accept me? You have to recognize that the wealth you have is nothing. That like it says in the book of Proverbs, the thing about wealth is it's like an eagle. Sometimes it just flies away. And even if you get to keep it every day of your life, the day you die, it's gone. It's not so precious metal at that point. He says in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Like I said, you need to hear the weight of that reality. We should all be afraid of boasting in the presence of God. Of trying to make ourselves something and therefore God less. But it's more than something to be afraid of. It's absolute foolishness. You see, go back to the idea of privilege. 
how much of your life can you really take credit for? How much of it relies on the fact that God made you who you are, born when you were born, to the parents you have, living in the place you live, and yet we make these status. Noble birth, really? Is that something that we see as an achievement in our lives? Yeah, you know, my parents, they're super rich, and they made me, and that makes me awesome. And that might be the easiest target, but all of them fall under the same scrutiny. Boasting in the presence of God is not just something that should be fearful. It's something that's foolish. Verse 30. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Notice the reiteration here. Why are you in Christ Jesus? Because of him. Because of God. This is God's work. Okay? One of the mistakes that the church in Corinth was making was they were feeling good about the teachers that they chose to call their teachers. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos, right? But it wasn't really about them. It was the I that was important. I'm of Paul, therefore I'm better than you because I'm on the right team, right? Even here, even here, we don't get to applaud ourselves for being on the right side of God's justice because we stand with Jesus. He says, this is what God has done. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Okay? The Bible says that when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are now in Jesus Christ. And basically what this means is that your destiny is united with his. That the riches that he has, you now have. That the strength that he has, you now have. That the destiny he has, you now share. That's what it means to be in Christ. And he says this is what God has done and Because of that, Jesus has become to us the wisdom from God. Now, it's weird that he brings up wisdom at this point at first glance because you're like, but we weren't really talking about wisdom. What's he trying to say here? But if you go back and you read the whole passage, the big boast to the Corinthian church, the status that they're obsessed with the most is the wisdom, the eloquent, the one who everybody knows is is the smart guy, and he says, no, 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 no. If you understand this right, the greatest and most tremendous and truest wisdom, that's found in what God has done in Jesus Christ. And so what he says of this whole thing then is, the cross of Christ is foolishness from the outside. But from the inside, we realize. What I'm saying to you tonight, if if you really get what we're talking about now, if you really see what God has done in shaming the honorable, You'll say with Paul in the book of Romans, oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. This is what I honestly believe. I believe that God's plan, which we call the gospel, is the greatest plan. That there could be no better. That there are no other options. There are no plan Bs. There are no other ways that compare And so when you come to see this, you see that it's the wisdom of God. You see it in Jesus Christ. And then notice he gives us three more things, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now, grammatically, this is not four things. It's not in Christ is wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and uh, redemption. In fact, grammatically, you can see that's the case even in the English because look at the way that the ands function. Okay, 
it's much better to see it as wisdom from God, comma, or maybe even semicolon, that is righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Okay, he's unpacking it here. Now, here's what I think is so interesting about this. It would have been totally appropriate to Paul say, you were despised and now you're accepted. You were seen as foolish, but in Christ you were wise. You were of no noble birth, but now you have the new birth and you're in Christ Jesus, and that's not what he does. In other places, he does that, but here when he's talking about status, when he's talking about honor and shame, he doesn't say that the metric has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He says it's completely changed entirely. He says, where we find our identity as Christians is not in wealth or in birth or in influence, but in righteousness, in sanctification, and in redemption. It has a larger vote in your life on if everything's okay. It has a larger play in your life on determining what you choose to do or not do. What I'm saying to you tonight is that these three things change the car you buy or the job you take. Listen, sometimes we don't take jobs because we love it, because we're good at it, and because we feel it's good for other people. We take it because it's highly respected. Or because our parents say it's highly respected. But this changes when you are in Christ because you have righteousness. Now this is the word that speaks specifically of justification, that we are now seen by God as righteous and without sin because of what Jesus has done. The second one, sanctification, speaks of the fact that God is not just positionally seeing us as righteous, but practically working in us to make us more like Jesus and therefore more righteous. That he sent the Holy Spirit, not just forgiveness for our sins, but the Spirit for obedience, for walking in righteousness. And then finally, this word redemption. Now notice that word. This is not about what you've bought, but the fact that you've been bought. That's what this word for redemption means. That's where identity is found. That's where the boast is and the confidence and the honor. It's that we now belong to Jesus Christ. This word goes all the way back to describing the exodus in the Old Testament, where God took slaves and brought them out and made them his people. Now, it is interesting to me that these three words, when they're put together, may be speaking of the Christian life from beginning to end past, present, future, okay? Righteousness here speaks of the fact that your sin's penalty is dealt with. Sanctification speaks of the fact that the power of sin has been dealt with, and redemption, which is often used to the fact of talking about the fact that Jesus is coming back, may be referring to the fact that the presence of sin will be dealt with, right? That what God has begun in you, he will be faithful to complete. What he's sealed you in, in the Holy Spirit, will come to fruition. That's what redemption means here. But notice what Paul is saying. He's saying that for the Christian, what defines our status, what says everything's okay, what determines that we are in a good position and all will work out well, is defined by Christ's righteousness, by God sanctifying us by the fact that we will be redeemed. Now, you can't, you can't be defined, you can't boast in Jesus and your wealth. You can't boast in the fact that God has saved you and you went to Cornish. You can't 
do the and thing here because they're completely different. On one column are the things that you have done that you're responsible for here. Here he says, your only boast is Jesus Christ. In fact, notice how he finishes here in verse 31. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now he quotes here. He quotes from the book of Jeremiah chapter 9 and it's worth turning to because it's clear that it's not just the words he quotes that's on his mind. The context matters. Um, Jeremiah is not too hard to find if you can find the Psalms. If you turn uh, from the Psalms towards the New Testament, you'll hit Isaiah and then the following prophet is Jeremiah. And we find this verse in chapter 9. So the verse he quotes was found in verse 24, but look at verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like where he started in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1, right? He continues on here and he says, don't boast in this, but verse 24, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, and that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Where is the boast? In God, in his character, in his doing, in his behavior. Don't boast in your wisdom, or your riches, or your power. Instead, he says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, as Paul always does, when he talks about the Lord in the Old Testament, he applies it directly to Jesus. Which, if you were sitting here tonight as an Orthodox Jew, would be shocking. But he does it consistently. Don't ever let anyone tell you that the New Testament doesn't refer to Jesus as God. It's on every page. For an Orthodox Jew who studied under Gamaliel to take a verse out of Jeremiah about the Lord and say that it's talking about Jesus is a big deal. But more importantly here, what he says is that our boast is in him and not in us. And this word for boast is so big that it's more than just bragging, or bragging rights for that matter. It means, what do you put your confidence in? In fact, a few times in the New Testament, that's how it's translated. My confidence, my trust, my foundation, what I stand upon. The determining factor in your life. And he says, for Christians, the determining factor is God. The determining factor is Jesus Christ. The thing that shapes your destiny and your identity is his righteousness and his sanctifying power, and the fact that he will redeem you. But recognize tonight that Paul's not writing this to, the, to a group of pagans hearing about the gospel for the first time. He's not turning to the rich of Greece and saying, lay aside your wealth and have a wealth that can't be eaten by moths. He's not turning to the Jewish, Jews in the synagogue in Corinth and saying, I know it's a stumbling block for you, but it's also the cornerstone. What he's saying tonight, what he's saying in this passage, he's saying to the church. Because this isn't just a pre-Christian problem. This obsession with status and determining our lives on honor and shame is defined by the world. It's our problem. Like the Corinthians, we have a tendency to, to see life in this way. And they brought this into the church. Now granted, they gave it a makeover. Right? When they say wisdom... They mean the spiritual gift of wisdom. 
When they say wealth, they, they've changed it, they've updated it, they've made it very religious, but it's still completely wrong. And Paul's great point is that all of the infighting and all of the, um, you know, unleveling of the playing field, if you will, that all of the status markers that they're using within the church have forgotten the fact that the only status they have in Christ. And we're prone to the same thing. We're prone to the same thing. And it's very easy to find out how you rate at this particular time in this particular moment. What's your boast? What is it that you share with people that determines honor, that shows that you belong? What is it that defines your destiny? And what is the lens that you ask other people to view you through? Because what we're seeing here tonight is that our boast is in the Lord, that it's not my righteousness but his. And it's not my power to live but his. And it's not I will command my own destiny and make this happen, but God has plans for me. Father, shame is part of the human condition ever since the fall. In fact, it's one of the ways that we define what was so great about Adam and Eve, that they were naked and unashamed. And they stand as unique in human history for that reason, that for a time, they were unashamed. And yet now, shame is a problem for all of us. We're constantly feeling like we don't measure up. And we scramble for all of these things that say, this, this is what gives me honor. This is what gives me worth. This is what validates my existence. This is what proves myself to you. But none of it works, which is why we have to do it again, why we have to point to it again. The insecurity of the human heart is so manifest in our own lives, Lord. But we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who is willing to lay aside honor and take on shame to be despised and rejected by men, that you being rich became poor, that you laid aside the influence and the powerful arm and instead subjected yourself to injustice. And you did it not just to break our foolish understanding of what is good and what is right and what is honorable, but you did it to bring us honor, to deal with our shame, to eradicate all of these false ways of salvation and at the same time provide one free of cost to all those who believe. God, we pray and we thank you for this. We ask that you'd continue to impress it upon our hearts, secure our hearts in the security of a life built on the rock. Let us not scramble for status anymore, but let our boast be in the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
as we respond tonight and we take communion. This is what Jesus called us as Christians to do, to remember this sacrifice. His body broken and the new covenant available in his blood. And so if you're a Christian tonight, as we worship on your own time, come forward, partake of that, and remember. Remember that Jesus took that shame, was despised by the world, not as an end in itself, but for you. And he did it willingly. He did it lovingly. So let's partake that and remember tonight. And as we sing, let's let our songs be a boast. Let it be a proclamation of allegiance. Let it be a standing on the solid foundation of Christ. Let's respond.